Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Keith Maitland's latest documentary project, Dear Mr. Brody, begins in January 1970 with a hippie millionaire, Michael Brody Jr., 21-year-old heir to a margarine fortune, announcing to the world he would personally usher in a new era of peace and love by giving away his $25 million inheritance to anyone in need. In a frenzied few weeks, Brody and his young wife, Renee, ignite a psychedelic spiral of events. Instant celebrities, the Brodies, were mobbed by the public, scrutinized by the press, and overwhelmed by the crush of personal letters responding to this extraordinary offer. The film again is called Dear Mr. Brody, and we're joined today by the director, Keith Maitland. Keith, welcome back to Film School Radio. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here again. Thank you. What a wild story this is. I'm very curious how it came to your attention and what inspired you to move forward with this as a documentary film project. Like so many of the great stories that uh, I've been fortunate to tell, it was brought to me by by a friend, specifically Melissa Glassman, who is uh, my producing partner, one of the producers on the film, and she's actually featured in the film. And Melissa happens to be my wife's college roommate. And Melissa discovered these letters um, and discovered this story while she was working for legendary Hollywood producer Ed Pressman. Ed has produced over 80 films going back to the, the first Malick film and the first Brian De Palma film and Wall Street, Thank You for Smoking, and so many others. And while Melissa was working for Ed, she went down to his storage unit in downtown LA in, in search of something else. And while she was in the unit, she discovered these 12 large cardboard boxes, all filled to the brim with thousands and thousands and thousands of letters. And all the letters were addressed to one man, Michael James Brody Jr., in January of 1970. And the kicker is all these letters were unopened. And so Melissa was immediately confused and, and excited. And, and she wondered, you know, what, what was this? What, what were these letters? And she asked Ed and Ed told her the story of a hippie millionaire who had inherited $25 million from his grandfather. Uh, he was a scion of big margarine money, um, you know, at the end of the, of the industrial revolution. And Ed had endeavored to make a film about Brody in the mid seventies, just a few years after the events that we cover um, all unfolded. And for whatever reason, you know, like so many great stories, uh, Hollywood couldn't quite figure out what to do with it. And the story sat untold for almost 50 years. But Ed couldn't bring himself to get rid of the letters. They had somehow come into his possession uh, as part of the rights deal that he was working out with the family and with the original writer. So he held on to them all these years. And, and I'm just so thrilled he did, because when Melissa found them, she thought, Ed's right, this should be a movie. And the funny thing is she reached out to my wife, Sarah Wilson, another one of our, of our producers, who's also our cinematographer. And Sarah is, a, of course, a brilliant photographer. And Melissa sent her a box of letters asking Sarah if she would take pictures of, of these, you know, these kind of historical remnants. You know, when you see the film, you'll see uh, the letters are really striking visually. Um, you know, back in 1970, you know, people were sending letters Every day, this is before email, this is, you know, before cell phones, this is the way that people communicated. The letters bore the, 
the marks of the people who sent them with interesting letterhead and beautiful colors, incredible penmanship back when people really learned how to write or, you know, faded typeset from, from typewriters. Anyway, the letters are just fascinating to look at. And Melissa sent the letters to Sarah to photograph. And in the process of talking about them, a little light bulb went off for me. And I said, you know, Mel, I think you should make a movie with Ed about, about Brody, a scripted film. That's what they were working towards. But I think there's something in these letters that's true and authentic. And I think that that has the potential to get lost in a scripted biography of, of Brody. And so I basically proposed an idea that we could all work together to make this documentary that Melissa would, would make it along with Ed and Ed would join us as an executive producer. And everyone liked the idea so much that Melissa quit working for Ed and she moved here to Austin. Uh, she moved right next door to where we live. And we spent three years making the film. That's fantastic. What a great story. It, you're right. Th this other track in the film of just the letters is, is really wonderful. And it just as you described it, people opening up, people, charlatans, sincere people, all kinds of different sort of people who, who took to heart what uh, Michael James Brody Jr. had said, which is he was prepared to give away an increasing amount of money over the course of of those those of those few days that he was that he was doing what he did. He's an interesting man. You mentioned he is the heir to the oleo margarine fortune, and who knew there was that real money in in margarine? But we find out in the film that there is. What was your first tape when you saw some of this archival footage? I assume that's how you were introduced, you know, into this sort of real time Michael Brody. What was your first impression of him as you're watching? I don't know what you saw first, but what was it that did you come away well, from? Well, you know, I, I've always been intrigued by that time period in American culture. I think my mom is right about the same age as Brody. And, you know, I was raised in the 80s when everything interesting that happened in the 60s was experiencing kind of a 20 and 25th anniversary kind of reevaluation. And so I feel like my knowledge of pop culture turned on just about the time that we were reappraising the 60s. And so I've always been intrigued by Woodstock and, and, and sex, drugs and rock and roll and, and all the great films that are, that are born out of that time. So when I saw the first footage of Brody, he looked like you know, honestly, it reminded me of, of the poster for Zabriskie Point. Like, you know, he, he looked like with this great American anti-hero, you know, kind of a, a hippie with a big idea. Um, you know, he wasn't a slacker. He was a go-getter. And, uh, and he had his beautiful wife, Renee, there with him. And they're, you know, they're decked out in, in pink flowery shirt and, and leather vests with long fringe. He's got an acoustic guitar in his hand in most of the shots. And I thought, this just looks like all these great stories I've heard before, but I, I've never heard this one. And then we started looking at it and we came to realize very quickly that Michael and Renee were the first instant celebrities of the 1970s. Their, their story kicks off January 10th of 1970. And just as, as we're turning the page on the 60s and all of those incredible stories about flower power and, and anti-war and uh, Woodstock and Altamont are, are just kind of in the recent you know, past, Brody is, is opening the door to something new. And he's saying, let's take the energy and the ideas of the 60s, but let's put them into action through money, through yeah. charitable giving, yeah. through philanthropy. Let's go out and change the, change the world. You know, that's so true coming out of that era after things like Woodstock, you mentioned in that, what now? 
Okay. Because this was the flowering of the youth culture. There was a, a sort of a, an ascendancy into the political discussions of the future of the country was being, in some ways, the agenda was being set by young people at that yes. time, right? Where did the war in Vietnam was raging. It was a massive anti-war movement at that time. And the culture, the music, the writing, all of it was all coming out. And it all seemed like the world was going to be a much different place if all of these things would be able to essentially find their find their place in in our future in a way that was substantive and and the rest of it so absolutely i think that's a wonderful observation on the time and it, the expectations were very high let's put it that way i would describe him from the footage that we see in in the film um dear mr brody that he seemed a bit manic sure i'm you know and i guess i say that I don't know if I would have said that at the time that I saw, if I had seen him in real time, if I would have said that, but there, there is something about, as you mentioned, perception, as we look back now on the, the era, and now we look at people's behavior and we see it, I think, through a different lens. That, is that a fair right. way? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I've told a number of stories that are these kind of stories from the past, and I'm always trying to balance, like, how do you create the immediacy of what it is to witness something unfolding in front of your eyes and even to be swept up in it, to be, you know, in the center of that storm, but also acknowledge the, the 50 years perspective that we have. Um, and the film tries to do just that. I think, right. I think you make a great point, Mike. The people that were surrounding with Brody didn't have the terminology and they didn't have the uh, education to be able to speak effectively uh, about his mental health or, uh, or some of the other kind of swirling issues in there. But I think looking at it through today's lens, you can't miss those, those things because those are the conversations we have been taught to have. And our antennas are now up for those exact sort of questions um, in a way that they weren't then. Right. So I wasn't around then, you know, this, this all unfolded about five years before I was born, but my understanding at the time tells me just like today, our world was, was in turmoil. There was a generational shift that was happening. You know, the Nixon is in power, and this is, you know, before his downfall. Both Michael and Renee had just six months earlier attended Woodstock themselves. The world was, was pregnant with possibility, but there were also some real challenges. You know, the 60s had, had really put, put us through the ringer with MLK and JFK and RFK and, you know, so many riots and so, many, so much upheaval. And so for Brody to kind of come through and say, I'm going to take the ethos of the hippie culture, uh, the peace and love movement, but I'm going to apply, you know, the language of our, the previous generations, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, um, capitalism, that, the merging of capitalism with, uh, with the hippie. That's right. And that was brand new. And I think whatever manic qualities that were, were, were apparent um, to, to our eyes today, I think they were, they were clouded in this big idea. When you go on Ed Sullivan and you say, hey, I'm giving out free money to anyone who needs it, you know, that's what people are going to, that's what people are going to focus on. That's what they're going to hear, free money. Yeah. Interesting character. I, I mean, on many levels and um, the fact that you have Renee as also kind of a counterpoint to her being there. Renee was the woman he married or met and married in a whirlwind romance, let's shall that's we right. say. And, but, and it's great to have her. As I say, you have the track of the letters, you have the track of the story, and then you have the commentary by people who were directly affected by by him and his uh, and his story too. So, your previous work, Tower, 
which was a wonderful documentary film about very tragic event. The uh, sniper that was shooting from the, I'll say, student tower or bell tower? I think it was a bell tower, right? The, the University of Texas clock tower. The clock tower. And uh, was there, is there anything in terms, I don't mean that they're... Their actions are similar, but was there anything about these two characters or these two people that is there, is there a thread between those two? I think there is, you know, it's, it's not the, it's not the obvious thing. It's, you know, uh, the, the sniper in the top of the tower, you know, is a monster and a madman who, who just rained terror down on the city of Austin and, and really on, on our world that day in 1966. So he's very different than Brody. But where they there is a thread that shares is that both films are really about the impact that one person doing a much larger than life, you know, um, thing can have on on thousands of people. And and that's something I'm I am I find myself over and over drawn to wanting to explore these big stories through as many facets of humanity as possible. For me, honestly, it comes back to uh a news event from my own childhood that has always stuck with me. I think every generation has their version of this, but but for me, it was the Challenger explosion, which happened in 1986. And I watched it live on TV um, because they had made a real effort to have school children watch that exact launch. And so there's an entire generation of school kids, almost everyone I meet within my age range remembers that day. And we remember the process of realization of this, this aspirational positive thing very quickly turning to confusion and then a recognition of tragedy. And I think you can, you can apply that, that, that little arc to most of the stories I'm drawn to, um, especially these big public stories. And I, I want to give them, you know, their weight. And, and so I'm always drawn into, into jumping into a separate perspective um, into what does a little kid think about this? What, is the, what does an old person think about this? How did this play across the airwaves and across the nation? And that's hard to do that kind of storytelling. It's a very expansive sort of telling. Yeah. that just keeps broadening out. And so figuring out how to pull it all in is, is the challenge. Um, and it's also some of the excitement of the, of the process. I want to go back to Dear Mr. Brody and um, and Michael's story, and that is, it's hard to overstate just what a frenzy he created in that, as I said, starburst sort of moment uh, of, of American zeitgeist um, and where everywhere he went. And going back to something, sort of double back on something else, which was the way that he was covered by the press, the, the, the mainstream press was, you know, there was the hippie culture was always looked at from a scant by by the mainstream media looking for something freakish to be to be brought out about it he certainly supplied them with that but to but to see the just to see the coverage i, I mean i guess i'm kind of going over the same ground we covered earlier but it is very interesting and i i i think you're right i think we when we see these things in real time when we see how that that unfolded it provides context. And through that context, I think we have a better understanding of ourselves and of the world we live in. I, I think that's one of the values of what, what I see in your film. Thank you. That's a great yeah. way to put it. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Again, I mean, it's a wonderful film and it's it being released through uh, Greenwich uh, Distributors and it is coming out on March 4th here. Uh, it's in theaters as well as I believe on, is it also on... Yeah, so we'll be in uh, theaters and, and uh, you know, on demand, iTunes and Amazon on March 4th. 
on theaters in New York and LA to start. And then we'll be rolling out some other cities. Uh, we'll be playing here in Austin in April. And then at the end of April, it goes completely wide on streaming uh, via the platform Discovery Plus. And I'm really excited to get a chance to kind of share the film, you know, with, uh, with audiences outside of the, the small festival appearances that we've made and the limited engagement we'll do in New York and LA. You know, that's really when, it, when the story becomes the world's is when it, when it goes out on streaming. So that'll be exciting. That's fantastic. By the way, your audio kind of cut out when we were we say that is March 4th is when it comes out. It's just March perfect. March 4th, we're in theaters. As a matter of fact, Melissa, our producer and, and the center of our film, likes to point out March 4th is the only day of the year that is a complete sentence. And uh, and so we are looking forward to marching forth with dear Mr. Brody starting then. It's been a long ride to get here, you know, Mike. It's one of the one of the things that you always hear filmmakers say this, this film took seven years to get made or it took 10 years to get made. Um, but in a lot of ways, you know, this film has taken 50 years to get made. Um, you know, Ed Pressman started talking about this, this story in, in 1971 or 1972. By 1976, there were multiple Brody projects trying, trying and vying for, you know, enough attention to get made. And, and like I said, for whatever reason, it just never happened. We, were uh, exposed to the story just as Tower was wrapping up. So that's how long I've been working on this since, uh, you know, the, I've known about it since 2015. We started working in earnest on it in 2017 and we wrapped right before, um, right before the pandemic. I, I, I finished the audio mix on this film on March uh, 10th of 2020. And then three days later, the world shut down. Well, congratulations on it. Again, as you mentioned, Tower, wonderful documentary film as it came out in 2016. And we have another one to to, uh, to list in the canon of Keith Maitland's work, and that is Dear Mr. Brody, be looking for it starting on March 4th. And then, as you said, rolling out to uh, across the country, eventually we'll all have an opportunity, no matter where we are, to be able to watch this. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time, Keith. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music